All right. <clears throat> so we pick up from last week with this idea that, that one way of understanding the good news is the king of all creation standing outside of the orphanage calling to us inside, come out. Um, come out. We, are, we get the opportunity to become his temples, his priests, his people, his sons, his daughters, up from the wretches to the royalty. So what does Peter call upon us for once we've kind of won this adoption lottery? Um, this section moving forward is going to be for God's people. So this is important to understand. So when we talk about um, the activities that follow the identity change, so that when there's an identity change, when, anytime there's an identity change, there's going to be a, a series of responsibilities, of activities, of behaviors that follow that. Um, very often in churches, those are taught in reverse order accidentally, just, just through missing the power of this. But so many, even of the whole letters, whole books in the Bible are built like this. Here is the Here's the truth. Here's who you are. Here's what God has done. Here's how this changes who you are. Now walk this way. And Peter, uh, this letter of 1 Peter is like this. So we're about to move into these. Um, but to understand, if you, haven't, if, you haven't, uh, if you don't accept the authority of Jesus Christ willingly, then so many of the behaviors that he calls upon us to change, so much of the repentance that he calls us to is going to be offensive. Um, I feel confident that at the, by the end of the sermon, many in here will find themselves offended by Peter's teaching um, on how to live this out. And so this is, and this is just day one of looking at the activities. It's going to only get more offensive. And so if you've not uh, placed yourself under the authority of Christ and said, listen, it's either my way or his way, so it's going to be his way, if you've not decided that in advance, then the offense is going to want, make you want to avoid rather than repent. And so especially, and I especially want any non-believers in the room to hear this. This is important. You're going to hear this and it's going to make you mad, and, and that's okay. It, 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 it sh sh kind of should make you mad, honestly. For you to think, oh, you know what, I, I'm going to do that anyway, is kind of like saying, you know, I can do this whole Christian thing without Christ. And that's offensive to Christ. No, you can't. Um, none of us can even do it with him. Um, very effectively. And so, but to even make the effort to learn to live this out is really difficult. It's really challenging to follow this identity change that we've had. So much of our identity, it stays the same when you become a convert. You're, you still have a lot of the same features. You're just now the Christian version of that. If you're a leader, okay, now you're a Christ-following leader. That's totally different. Maybe nothing about your job description changed, but your identity has. A Christ follower who's now a servant a Christ follower who's now a, chi a, a child who's now a Christ follower, a child who's now a husband who's now a Christ follower, a wife who's now a Christ follower, a citizen who's now a Christ follower. Those aren't the same things as just a citizen. They may look the same in a lot of ways, but they're not. So we're going to jump into Peter's teaching as he begins this transition in, begins this transition in his letter to say, he, I have now declared in a lot of ways for a chapter and a half who you are and what Christ has done in you and how different you are. Now, here are some ways to live that. Here you're going to live it out. And it starts here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
See, in this sense, there, <coughs> Peter's going to do something really strange here, and, and you might not have caught it, but I'm going to bring attention to it. So, to be, there, God, there were God's people, the Jews, and there was everybody else, the Gentiles. And what Peter has done with a largely Gentile audience is he has now clarified in chapters 1 and into chapter 2, there's this, now this, group, this new people. There's a new group of people who are also now fall under the heading of God's people. And God's people are those who are his living stones, the ones that he has chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father for the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of his blood. That's a new nation. There's now a new ethnos, a new ethnicity. And it's defined by its relationship. Its members are defined by their relationship to Jesus Christ as king. That's the new ethnos. It's a new polis. It's a new government system. It's a new kingdom. It's a new... But it's even a new ethnicity. Like you are now defined primarily by this, not by your nation of birth, not by your culture, not by your genetics, not by any of those. Those aren't what define you anymore primarily. They're still there, but they don't define you primarily. Just like you're a leader. Oh, but now you're a Christ-following leader. Oh, you're a child. Mm, yeah, but now you're a Christ-following child. See, there's a whole new ethnicity that has been wired into us. We are now God's people. Now, those who aren't God's people are called Gentiles. And so Peter, through the rest of the book, is going to refer to Gentiles, but he means spiritual Gentiles, not genetic Gentiles, because most of the people reading his book, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, those countries, those are Gentile countries. And so he's now going to use this word Gent, and he's going to do it without referencing it, which I think is really amazing. He's now going to just start referring to the unbelievers as Gentiles, very clearly communicating to the Gentile believers, you're now one of his people. And there's a whole other population of not his people. You're not part of the population of not his people. You're part of the population of, of his people. It's, it's an amazing distinction. It's easy for us to miss because we, we read the Bible. If you know the Bible, you just think, oh, Gentiles, right. That's, that's the non-believers. Only in the spiritual sense. They are the disobedient stumblers. And this becomes a pattern for the rest of the book. It's fascinating that, that Peter has done such a complete job of uniting Jew and Gentile under Christ that now there's a whole new definition for those terminologies. Now, living stones, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, his people fully chosen according to his perfect foreknowledge. And if I can comment on what a wonderful gentleness that is. Um, sometimes in Christian theological circles, a debate that, that people enjoy having is what it means that God foreknows and how does that play out and how he chooses and, uh, and it always strikes me that it's a little bit backwards in the way that it's done. People will say, um, oh, here's, the, here's what people argue against. And, and no one should, by the way, no one should believe this version of it. Is that God, before the creation of time, looked down through all the people he was going to create. He looked down forward through time. Before he's created anything, everything's just a thought in his head. He looks forward down through creation and he goes way down there and he goes, hey, I kind of like that Chris guy. I don't know, he's kind of cool, you know. I mean, I think he's a good dude. I, yeah, he's got some merit to him. I'm going to pick him on my team. Yeah, no, that's not how that works. So anyone who teaches that version of it needs to let go of that. The truth is God's foreknowledge and his choosing is an indication of his great gentleness. God's not like a middle schooler picking somebody to be on his dodgeball team. See, God's, or if he is, it goes like this. He looks down through all of creation. He goes like, oh, man. Man, he's kind of slow. He can't throw. Uh, okay, I'll pick him. 
The idea is that God's foreknowledge, that God would know it. He's not picking us because of our merit. He's picking us despite our lack of it. That his perfect foreknowledge is a sign of just how patient and gentle he is and how loving he is that he would look ahead. I had a client this week who referenced, um, she said, uh, I just have this fear that someday thousands of years from now, uh, you know, when we're in heaven and you find out really how messed up a person I am, you're going to go, man, I can't believe I let her be my client. And I was like, oh, believe me, someone in that conversation is going to feel like they got robbed. <laughs> it's not going to be me. You're going to, when you learn who, all about me in heaven and you go like, I, I let you be my counselor? Like, wh- what? My pastor? Wait, what was I thinking? Well, you didn't know. So that's the only excuse you have. <laughs> so given who we are, here's what Peter says. Peter says, abstain from the passions. Great word. Um, epithumia. Um, boiling up. The, the, the root here, the, the idea of the heat of this. Some Greek teachers will come to think of this as opposite of rational. Opposite of reasonable. Abstain from these passions. Um, these, these idea that there's something internally that is out of control. Something's in charge. It's not my wisdom. It's not my intelligence. But something's in charge. That's the picture here. The desires of the flesh that are sinful. At some point, this, this thinking transitions from mere desire. I like that. I want that. To craving. It becomes a mental decision. If I can, I will, even if it means offending God. That we would say, I want that even if God doesn't want that for me. That's, that's this idea of the lusts of the flesh, of the, these types of desires. Lust is a kind of mental sin without the opportunity for the body to act on it or without the body acting on it. So it's, a, it's still a decision, it's still an action, it's just an internal action. And I think we know the difference. I think we can tell the difference. People debate about this, about where the, those lines are, and I don't, I don't know that, I think we de- debate it because we're looking for some way out of it. The truth is, I think typically we know exactly when, where those lines are for ourselves, where something goes from being a desire to being a mental engagement, a decision, a choice. That's dangerous, and, and James kind of parses out for us this, this difference. James 1.14 begins this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word desire there is the same Greek word as in 1 Peter. When then desire, when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you would say, okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with these sinful desires, with these lustful desires? What are we supposed to do with them? Well, we should just say no, right? We're just supposed to say no to them. Like, nope, not going to do that. Well, that's, that's actually not what's taught scripturally. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells, says that we should flee sexual immorality. Well, that should be fairly obvious. If something is sexual sin, then obviously what the Bible is going to do is say, run, stay away from it. But this passage, this word, doesn't just reference the sexual sin, the action of sexual sin. Now it's talking about the lust for something that's not ours. The desire to obtain something that God doesn't want for us. It's more closely linked to what Paul teaches to Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee, in other words, escape, avoid, youthful passions. Here we have the same word, youthful passions. Passions, the same concept. 
And pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So gathering together with other people who are seeking purity with God, who are calling upon God with a pure heart, you choose these instead of those. Flee the youthful passions. And by the way, this doesn't say, notice it doesn't say youth, comma, flee passions. It says flee youthful passions. You don't have to be young to have youthful passions. Um, I had a professor, um, Dr. McGorman, who was 72 years old when he was when teaching the class, and he was um, teaching through one of the Corinthians, <clears throat> and he referenced this concept. He said that, that when he was a student, he had a professor, and he named him, but I don't remember who it was, who was 72 years old when he was a professor. And he said, one of the students raised their hand when they were going over this, way back when he was a student, and said, Dr. So-and-so, what's it like to be done with the lusts of the flesh? And the 72-year-old professor said, if it happens, I'll let you know, okay? And Dr. McGorman, my professor, says, and let me re reaffirm this perspective, it hasn't happened for me yet. And so this idea that these are, you don't have to be youthful. The thing is, an older believer can still engage in youthful passions. To do so is to reveal immaturity. When we're still falling into the same passions that are youthful passions, even though we're old believers, what that shows is we have not put childish ways behind us. And, and for some, to some degree, we haven't. Abstain here is a really cool word. I really appreciated this. Um, apeko, in the middle voice. Uh, apo, it's two words, apo plus echo. To avoid possessing. Okay, to avoid possessing these desires. Now, here's what's wild. It shows up, it's used in a different context than Luke 15, 20, but I think it, it'll help us understand what Peter's asking us to do, commanding us to do in regards to these fleshly lusts. Luke 15, 20 says this, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And you go, yeah, what could that possibly have to do with the same concept of fleeing youthful lusts or abstaining from youthful lusts? Well, the Greek, concept, the Greek word here is connected to this, while he was still a long way off. Same Greek, actually, same Greek word shows up there. In other words, stay away. Stay a long way away. Still stay a long way off. Keep on staying a long way off. Don't, don't get involved in this. The nature of the grammar here plus the root of it gives me insight. So staying away from owning is probably the easiest understanding, right? Stay away from this. Avoid possessing. Avoid owning. Now, you, whatever yours are, you know this. So one, one of my two big ones of my flesh is, has to do with sugar. So if I'm trying to lose weight or I'm trying to be in shape, I can't store things like Little Debbie snacks, right? I can't. I can't keep them nearby. What happens if I keep them nearby? I will eat them. But what if I dedicate myself to not eating them, right? Then what happens? I eat them later, right? Exactly. That's, a, that's, what, they, that's what it means. When our fleshly lusts give in, when we are tired, hungry, lonely, bored, there's a big one for me, bored, um, whatever it happens to be, when, when we feel something bad, are the little child in us that's called the flesh, that weak, little, whiny, pathetic thing that just wants to feel better, right? I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be tired, right? I don't want to feel lonely. 
I want to feel better. Whatever I feel bad, I want to feel better. It's why we have to learn as Christians. It's why we're challenged all throughout the New Testament to do things like fast and memorize and study and meditate, things that don't come naturally to us, that we do them to help remind that little kid, you're not in charge. That flesh, you're not in charge. You're not in charge. You get to experience these feelings, and guess what? Deal with it. Learn to look someplace else than the lusts of the flesh for comfort. Learn to look someplace else. And that's part of what we're, motiv- we're challenged to do and motivated to do is to stay away from these things, whatever they are, when we feel this and we go to whatever it happens to be. And obviously, sexual temptation is a big one, especially in today's world where sexual temptation is being thrown at us. There was a day when you had to be willing to risk embarrassment or shame to engage in the lusts of the flesh when it came to sexuality because you were going to have to go to you know, a bookstore and look at a magazine that everyone knew what you were doing or something like that. Well, no more. Now it's coming to us left and right. And so it's important that we abstain, stay far away. And the same thing applies. The apostle Paul refers to this as, as making no provision for the flesh, that we keep it away, farther away, farther away. This is one of the things that we've got to learn to do with these things. What is it going to require to keep these things away from us? What thing barriers do you put in the way? So I go, you go, well, back to the little, you know, the little Debbie snacks mentality. I'm sitting at home and I start, I start feeling, I don't know, bored or tired. So of course, when you're bored, what do you do? Well, you eat, right? That's what you're supposed to do when you're bored. That makes total sense. And so you, you go to the pantry and you start looking around and seeing if there's any you know, stuff. And eventually, you know, you're like, no, there's nothing, right? And, and you dig a little further and you dig a little deeper and you're starting to look for old snacks. Like maybe I left something behind from the last time. And I, and you're, you're looking for these and you find, you know, uh, Bobby Hicks texts me after every sermon, like, Hey, I love this insight and whatever today. Today he said, he said, what cracks me up most is when you go and then you find some like old stale something. I mean, look to vanilla wafers. Like you're like, the old stale vanilla wafers that got left from the last time you made banana pudding three years ago or something like that, and you're like, okay, I'll try those. That's a, like you, we get that desperate. That was a, my children got to see. So think about like with alcohol that you go, listen, you don't, you get rid of it. You get it out. If, if, if alcoholism, if, if alcohol is your go-to, that's where your flesh goes, then you can't store it. You can't have it around. You just can't. It's not something that you, and you know this about yourself. You go, eventually I want to drink too much. It's just going to happen. So... It's got to be gone, whatever it is. There's nothing immoral about owning Little Debbie snacks, but for me, it means eventually I'm going to eat them. And so you have to make no provision. We have this beautiful picture that Joshua gives us, um, because we look at at what it continues to say, but the nature of the grammar here, I want to say, here's another part of it, this is what I was getting to, is that not only do we have to uh, avoid possessing it, but we have to possess not having it. In other words, we've got to own the responsibility of keeping it far away. That's what we've got to do. We've got to own that responsibility. It's not my wife's job to make me responsible to keep these things far away from myself. She can help. She can be a friend. She can hold me accountable. All those different things are fine. But it's still, I've got to own that. I've got to own these battles. No one can own them for me. It's me and God have to own, have to own this under him and look to him. Why? Peter says they wage war against our soul. This is not a random drive-by shooting language. This is the word war here. They wage war. This is, this is strategic, intentional. This is, these things are out to get us. They're out to destroy our lives, whatever they are, whatever these addictions are. 
And so, again, I'm not preaching against Little Debbie snacks or preaching against alcohol. What I'm saying is whatever it is that, it, that we, the, our lust, that our flesh goes to, to find comfort instead of the provision that God has given us, these are the lusts of our flesh, and they wage war against us. You've experienced it. You've said, I'm not going to do this thing. I'm going to stay away from this thing. I'm going to make right decisions about this. And it strategically finds its way back into your life. Am I right? And we're so frail that that's why I say when you, when Paul says make no provision for the flesh and I, you know, you, if you don't eat all the little Debbie snacks, when you finally give in, if you only eat some of them instead of the entire box, you have to throw the rest of the box away and you have to open the packet. You can't throw them away in the packages, right? <laughs> this is why you don't throw away alcohol in the bottle, right? When you go, I'm, I'm done with this and you throw it away in the bottle. No, you're not. I know you're not, you know you're not. Whatever it happens to be that we find this, that we go, no, I, I mean, uh, yeah, Th this week having a client say, okay, I'm turning the, over a new leaf, I'm done with the alcoholism, I'm done with the alcohol, no more drinking for me. Then the immediate question is, well, how much of it is still in your house? I mean, some, then you're not done with it, are you? And again, I'm not picking on that one. Pick whatever it is. It's why there are filters and blockers and passwords on all of my devices, to make no provision for the flesh so that in my sanity, I make it difficult for my flesh to seek out that comfort. That when, that when the flesh goes like, oh, I don't want to feel lonely or I don't want to feel bored. Well, then it pit you have to pit the laziness of the flesh against the lusts of the flesh, right? I mean, could I go to Brookshire's and go buy a little Debbie snack? Sure, I could. But I don't know. You know, it's not worth it. I have to drive all the way there. Somebody's going to see it. That's embarrassing, right? <laughs> It's the, literally the only thing I'm buying. Right. Right. That's a. So when Joshua blows it and no one listens, and, and he doesn't listen to God, he doesn't even ask God before he makes the decision to invade Ai, and, and he ends up with 30 something dead Israelites at the end of the battle, and he falls on his face before God, and he, <coughs> he pleads his case, and he is this big, really, it feels to me, I may be being inappropriate, appropriately judging Joshua here, but it feels whiny. Every time I read it, it just feels whiny. Oh, this and that. And, and at the end of this, God says to Joshua, what? Stand up. It's not our job with this new identity. It serves nothing for us to wallow in our sin or to wallow in our pain or to wallow in our failure. That doesn't accomplish anything for the gospel. What he says is get up. Stand up. Get up. Take the sin out of the camp. Gather the people Remind them of who they are, get the sin out of the camp, and get back to war. You're at war. You had a defeat. That doesn't mean you sit here for the rest of the combat. It means you take, get the sin out of the camp, you put the boundaries in place, and you get back to what I called you to do. That's the right answer. And also, by the way, the question that always strikes me is, these things are waging war against your soul. Are you waging war back? Man, it's not good to be in a war and not be fighting. Right? If somebody has declared war on you and you don't know it yet, they're going to get you. We saw that way, way, every sneak attack that's ever been done in history, the famous one being like Pearl Harbor, when the other person's at war with you and you're not at war with them yet, you're in huge trouble. And so what do you do when you're at war? Well, the first thing you do is you gather allies. And this is something often as Christians we fail to do because I guess we're embarrassed or ashamed of our sin. Listen, I hate to tell you, but if I said, hey, everyone who really, really struggles with some sin that's really embarrassing to you stand up. Everyone who didn't stand is struggling with the, with the sin of dishonesty. 
All of you have it. We all have this. This unites us that where all of us have sin in our life that humiliates and embarrasses us, that we wouldn't want our, anyone to know about, especially not our grandmothers. And this is something we would not want seen. But if we don't gather allies, we're beat before we start when it comes to the war. Now listen, the war is going to end on our side. We're on the winning side of the war. The final victory is set. We're just still in the war. The war's not over yet. The, the enemy has already been defeated. He just fight, he's still fighting this rebel battle. And are we waging this war? I want you to hear, we actually have life groups in this church that are meant to help us wage this war. In fact, all of them, to one degree or another, are meant to help us wage this war. One of them, we have regeneration, which actually has a table outside today. And so life groups are where you need to be with other broken, messed up, dysfunctional people who are fighting this war, and they need you to fight alongside them, and you need them to fight alongside of you. This one, that life group in particular, all the life groups are meant to accomplish this. That one in particular is created to do that one thing. That's all it's really meant to do is to help us learn to come together and face our addictions and the lusts of the flesh. So what does it look like to live this out? Well, notice, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're supposed to be honorable among unbelievers. That's interesting. We will uh, unpack this more when we get to chapter 3, uh, verse 15 and 16. I'll read it to you so you'll see. Um, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good name in Christ may be put to shame. So in other words, this war isn't only for your soul. It's for all the other souls around us, for those who don't believe. So our conduct needs to be good, needs to be right, needs to be according to this new identity that we have around unbelievers, because their soul is that there's a war for their soul too, and we want to be on the right side of that. Our prayer is that family, friends, spouses, children, neighbors, coworkers, and random strangers will see the goodness in our lives and desire to know God better. This is direct teaching from Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why we perform these good works. I've always thought it was intriguing, and I I stand strongly against this mentality that you always have to have your best face on, have your whole act together when you come to church. And this is the one place where you shouldn't have to. Every place else, you better Surrounded by unbelievers, yeah, let your conduct be good. Don't, don't, show the, don't show your rough sides there too much. Here, man, you got to have some place. We need the life groups. We need our families. We need our friendships in order to not have to be on all the time, in order to get to take a break from ministry mode to at least some degree so that we can sit around one another and not have to be on edge nonstop. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I hate to say it, but as believers, especially as spouses, especially as parents, whatever we do in word or deed is being done in the name of Jesus Christ, whether we like it or not. People are seeing it and they're going, oh, you're one of those Christians. Oh, you're, oh, oh, mom, dad, you're one of those Christians. And we're seeing this version of, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian? Okay, cool. Well, I'll move on from that the first chance I get. Like this, it's being done through the name of Jesus whether we like it or not. Here's the transition. Who we are needs to translate into what we do, into how we live. And we're going to be doing several things over the next few months 
to kind of make sure we're prepared for that role as priests and temples out there in the world. One is a wave of invitations. I want to encourage and challenge each one of you who are believers, who are member ministers of this church, to begin developing the habit of inviting people. Now, you can invite them into your home, you can invite them into your lives, you can invite them into the gospel, or you can invite them here to church. I, don't, I, don't, I get paid the same no matter how many people come. This is not about getting some kind of bonus. This is about the fact that this is a good place to invite people and they can hear the gospel. They'll hear it from you. They'll hear it from me. They'll hear it from whoever's teaching. They'll hear it in life groups. They'll hear it in children's uh, ministry program stuff that's going on. They're going to hear it. They're going to experience the youth, their their kids, their teenagers are going to hear it. They're going to hear and experience the gospel. And so we've got to get back in a habit of this. And here's what I've learned. No one's offended by being invited. It's a weird job. If you've not tried it yet, try it. Watch how no one is offended by this. Are you offended when people invite you to things? Even if you don't want to go? Are you offended that they invited you? No, you're not. Well, the other people out there, they're not any different from that. You invite them to church, that's going to be super rare for them to be offended by that. Now, they may be offended by the message, and certainly if they get to know any of us, they'll be offended by us over time. That's a given. The hope is that they'll get to know Christ a little bit before you know, we let them down too badly. But this is a, but as far as them being, dis, being disappointed by being invited, it just doesn't happen. There's a lady who, uh, a place where I get coffee that I've invited her two or three times to church. And finally, after the, like the, the third time, she stopped me. and was like, it just, I'm not coming. I was like, okay, I'll get it. She goes, I'm, I'm, I'm like really anti-Christian. Like I'm really an atheist. I'm really anti-Christian. I was like, well, then you definitely need to be there. Like what? I, listen, we'll get you. We'd love to have you there. Like, come on. And, and, and so, but she, and she said, I so appreciate that you keep inviting me. And so I just, it's just, it just isn't offensive to be invited to things. So why are we so afraid to do it? If it's because you're embarrassed about something here at the church, that you go, I can't invite people here. We got this weirdness, right? Whatever it happens to be, let me know. And if it's something we can adjust, we will. We've done that over the years. But our goal intentionally is to make this experience a time when no matter who you are, you wouldn't feel too uncomfortable about it, right? It's one of our goals. We'd love to have you have, have you do that. To invite them into your home, into the gospel, depending on how well you know them, or at least invite them to church or something that we're doing at church. By the way, when you think about this, it may push you back into by the importance of your conduct before unbelievers, doesn't it? If you say, oh, I'm hesitant to invite this person to church because they know me, do they know that you're a jerk as a boss or that you're a lazy employee? They've heard your idea of a funny joke or they know what your idea of a party looks like. They know how much time you spend complaining about your spouse. Oops, you're going to feel like a hypocrite when you invite them to church, aren't you? This is another reason to make sure your conduct among the unbelievers is strong. So that when it comes time for them to look for someone who's got it together, they'll come to you. Now, you don't have it together, but you know who does. And that's where you push them. That's where you point them. We want to be the ones who are weird in the, in, we are weird out there in the world because of these things. And that they see that. Everybody else is panicked because of the, you know, the, the cashier's going slowly, and you're the one who's fine. That's fine. But we're going to all be like, it's God's time anyway, right? It's, it's his life, not my life. He wants me to spend 20 minutes in this line, of, 20 minutes of his life in this line. That's kind of his problem, not mine, isn't it? That we learn to take a very different attitude when it comes to things that we face out there in reality. When people see that, they'll be like, what is, what, that's just weird. Like, yeah, yeah, it is weird. I'll tell you about it. This is where Peter starts. I'm hesitant to even talk about this 
since it's so far removed, this, this topic he's going to jump into, it's so far removed from any conversations that we've been having around here. Um, he, he wants us to talk about our relationship to the civil governing authorities. And since we don't ever have to wrestle with that in, in today's world, just not sure that we should not just skip this, right? You ready to be offended? Okay, verse 13. This is Peter's. You talk to Peter and the Holy Spirit, not me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The basic understanding of authority, which we've gone over several times, Needless to say, we needed to go over it several times during the whole COVID crisis. But this passage and its sister passage, its mirror passage in Romans 13, teaches very clearly that we must respond to the highest authority in any given topic, in any given situation, and so that we respond to the governing authority in our life, and, but always we defer to the highest authority. So I teach my children, when you get pulled over by a police officer, there are certain smart wisdom guidelines for you to do. Keep your hands visible. Talk respectfully. Their job is very hard. Don't be, they, and they deal, everybody, every single person they interact with is, by definition, having a bad day, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be talking to a police officer. And so they're having it. So you listen, they have to deal with every human being that way. You respond to their authority. Now, if they ask you to sin, don't, right? That's how that works. If they call upon you to disobey a higher authority, that's when you would disobey. No other time. The same thing is true of the governors and the mayors and the judges and the president and the Congress. This is how this works. This is how authority works. God has hardwired this into authority, and he claims it. Jesus Christ claims that all authority comes from him. John 19, 11, Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate, not known, by the way, as some godly leader, not known as even a moral leader. John 19, 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. All authority proceeds eventually from God. Now, common complaint, oh gosh, Chris, but our government's bad. I mean, you just, Peter doesn't understand what it's like to be under the type of governing authorities that we have. Right, because the Roman government was known for being so much less wicked than the American government. Right? That's, that's how that works. We have a broken, evil, and immoral system. Certainly we do, and we have. And they're broken, evil, and, and because humans put it together, and broken aspects to our systems. But when Peter wrote about this, in all likelihood, he wrote it from Rome under the rule of Nero, who at least is famous for doing things like lighting his dinner parties with people crucified, covered with tar, and set on fire. Now, we've got some dark people in our government, but I haven't seen that one come out yet. That's not one that they've not reached that one. When Paul wrote his mirror passage in Romans 13, he probably was referencing Claudius. Neither of these are known as men in history for their morality. In fact, they are known for their immorality. Peter in Acts 4, John and Peter, same Peter, are arrested by the Jewish civil leadership, which is essentially identical to the religious leadership. <laughs> uh, but in Acts 4.18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, you should already know how Peter's going to handle this. 
The civil authorities who call him, they tell Peter and John to come. So what do Peter and John do? They go. Is it somehow breaking God's law or sinning to go? Absolutely not. They then listen respectfully. They hear everything they have to say. They respond to their authority. Then they call them and charge them not to speak or teach anything in the name of Jesus. Problem. There's a higher authority here at work. Higher than the Sanhedrin, a higher authority, and that's Almighty God. And Peter and John referenced that. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So you dis- listen, you're now, in de- in, you're now in opposition to God. To obey you would be to disobey God. So you guys can decide what you think is the right thing to do there. We've already decided. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. This is really hard for us, especially... As Americans, especially as Texans, especially as Christians, especially as Baptists, in order to disobey a governing authority, you must be able to say, to obey this would cause me to disobey God. That's the only case we as Christians can make. To obey this would cause me to disobey a higher authority, ultimately God. You are not, when you disobey the governing authority, listen, when we disobey the governing authority, we are not making a claim of our own opinion. We are making a claim of God's opinion. If you don't know God's opinion, for certain, I vote, I recommend against you quoting him. This is where we stand. Did I tell you you'd be offended? I am. I'm offended by this. Peter leaves very little wiggle room here. When you start a sentence with, for this is God's will... You're intentionally closing all the doors. You're not offering a suggestion. This is actually how. Some of you who wrestled with this, as we did, all through the COVID thing as a church, what do we do and not do? How do we follow and not follow? How do we obey? How do we do this? Is there any point that, they're at, that the governing authorities are asking us to do this in, that would cause us to disobey God? And we had to debate those. The leadership team, they did, the, the, the staff did. We discussed this and we tried to figure this out. And listen, I'm not telling you that we all know how to apply this perfectly. We don't. That is absolutely not the case. When you're responding to the highest authority, that's really tough. Pretending application is easy, you're not going to hear me do that. What do we do when one authority is in opposition to another authority? Well, then what do we do? When a president or a congress is in opposition to a constitution... Which one are we supposed to obey? When a governor is in opposition to a mayor, which one are we supposed to obey? I'm not telling you I always know the answers to these in advance. What I'm telling you is we have to confess in advance before we know that we will, under God, obey the highest authority that stands to the degree we under, that we're able to understand that. And this is not easy, it's not, but it's not a suggestion. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People in Peter's time were already teaching that Christianity was a rebellious religion. And Peter was saying, listen, here in Rome, you need to understand that is a lie. That is not who we are. We are not a rebellious religion. We just have a highest authority. And sometimes that authority is going to trump yours, Mr. Emperor or Mr. Priest. Sorry, but it is. It doesn't mean we're control of what foolish and ignorant people do when they speak of authority. But it does mean that we get to answer to God for how we respond to the governing authorities. There's so many factors here that play into it and so many challenges that we have to play. But understand, the defense, if you say, I'm going to disobey the civil government, you have to be able to say, because God has instructed me not to. 
I am, this is God's, it is God's opinion that no one should do this thing. Whew, that's a high standard, isn't it? And it's tough, but it's something as Christians that's going to make us weird among many of our friends. <clears throat> I want to leave you with these two verses. Peter isn't done, and we're going to be unpacking a lot more. And it's not going to get any easier, by the way. You think you're offended now, just wait. Peter isn't done. We'll unpack more, but let me leave you with these Spirit-inspired words for us to wrestle with um, for the next week. It's going to be a while before we unpack these, but as we unpack these, um, I want you to be wrestling with them. If you're someone who likes to memorize Scripture or even who doesn't, these are two great ones to memorize to have in your heart. Here we go. Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Those are overarching life. It's, those are kind of like the, if we only had those two verses in the whole Bible, we could spend the rest of our life trying to learn to live those out. Am I right? So prayerfully, let's consider, and as you stand with me, please, um, Consider these and what the Spirit is speaking to us about. If you say, listen, there's sin that I've hidden in my life. I am at war, but I'm doing it alone and in the dark and filled with shame. It's time to break that. It's time to get out of that, gather some allies, make no provision for the flesh, get the help that you need, sign up for regeneration, get counseling, talk to some friends or family, whatever it is, do it. Do it. Abstain from that and figure out what it takes to wage war there for you. And then for us to be submitting ourselves to the governing authorities, how applicable for us to wrestle with both of these concepts in this day and age. Father, we're so grateful that your word speaks through the millennia. Here we are 2,000 years after these things were written down by your servant Peter, and they aren't less necessary. They're just as applicable in some ways. It's just weird. Maybe they're more applicable in some ways for us than they were even for Peter. I can only imagine, Lord, what it felt like for the Christians scattered around the world to discover that it was God's will for them to silence foolish talk by obeying the civil government. I'm sure they weren't any more happy about that than we are, Father. And we're not doing it for the civil government, but we will do it for you. We'll submit for your sake and for the sake of your gospel. Lord, we don't always know how. We ask your Spirit would lead us. And Lord, we submit to your spirit when it comes to the wicked desires that we have. When it comes to the sin that, that wars against our soul. God, help us to put the boundaries in place. Help us to shore up the walls, to dig in the moats, to flee, to stay far away from these, this sin in our lives. And Lord, help us to surround ourselves with other believers who can encourage us and challenge us and help us and pray for us and stand alongside of us. Lord, for those who are lost, who don't know you, I'm sure this is even more offensive and more frustrating than it is for the rest of us. I pray your spirit would work in mighty ways in the hearts of all of us to conform us to what you have for us, this good gift. Call us out of the orphanage, Lord, and into your loving arms forever. It's your son's name we ask it. Amen. So as we sing now, if, if you can sing, you may need to pray, especially today you may have stuff you need to come and leave at the altar. Do it. Do that. I mean, if you need to reach out to other people, do that. If you sign up, region when you leave here, go for it. Um, out there at the table. Whatever it is that God's leading you to do, I pray that you would do that. For everybody else, be praying right now. Pray for everybody else in the room as you sing. Respond however the Spirit leads. If you've been through the Welcome Home team and you're ready to come um, live 
uh, and with this dysfunctional family here at this church, we'd love to have you, and you can do that during this time as well. Guys?